Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And today we're going to look at the philosophical underpinnings of the mandate system that saw the colonies of the Ottoman Empire and the German Empire, the German Kaiserreich, transferred into mainly British and French stewardship after the end of the First World War. So today I'm reading from Susan Peterson's brilliant book, The Guardians, The League of Nations and the Crisis of Empire. And there's a very interesting kind of uh, dynamic that she points out uh, in the uh, last two years of the the First World War, 1917 to to 1918. Um, And she points out that, particularly with regards to the Ottoman Empire, the French and the British are involved in a desperate scramble for territory, particularly when it comes to um, Palestine. And once this scramble for territory has uh, completed itself, once the war has entered, there is a transition from um, wartime smash-and-grab acquisitions to the development of a more formalised more legitimised um, mandates plan, um, a, um, a way of transferring colonies to the stewardship of the British and the French. And behind it are a number of um, ideas that had been uh, at the forefront, particularly of British imperialism, but there were a number of ideas that actually came from Wilsonian internationalism, and we're going to explore those now. And these were the philosophical underpinnings that made the mandate system what it was. Susan Peterson writes, To explain how the wartime scramble gave way within a year to a plan to entrust civilised peoples with the benevolent tutelage of the rest, we have to look beyond imperial statesmen uh, and their machinations. There is a reason for this. Faced with the Bolshevik challenge and the American public unwilling to fight a war for imperial aims, A vain and bookish American president promised a peace of a new kind, a peace without annexations or indemnities, overseen by a new global body, the League of Nations. That Wilsonian moment, as we know it, elicited a response that Wilson never imagined, with mobilised publics from Korea to Poland to Samoa, 
not only to mention the populations already taking matters into their own hands in the Middle East, deciding that the president's stirring words applied to them. So here we have um, Woodrow Wilson's uh, principles of self-determination emerging as a kind of an explanation to the American public and an explanation to the world population at large what the First World War actually was, what its aims actually should be. There were no explicit um, um, ideological war aims that were articulated by the British and French other than um, British and French national interest up until 1917. The fact that you have an autocratic czarist state on the same side as two uh, parliamentary democracies meant that it was very difficult for um, the British or the French to advocate anything more laudable, more noble than simply some ill sort of defined notion of the defence of civilization. Um, however, once the Tsar is overthrown in February 1917, and when America joins the fight in April 1917, all of a sudden people like Lloyd George are able to speak in far more explicitly political and ideological terms, talking about the struggle for liberty and democracy and all these sorts of things. This is why in 1918, when the Kaiser is overthrown, um, there are numerous German revolutionaries who believe that it's crucial to get rid of the Kaiser in order to be able to present Germany as a democratic state that is able to engage in the, the peace process. And that getting rid of the Kaiser and establishing Germany as a democracy would mean that Germany fared better at the inevitable uh, peace conference. So all of a sudden, um, the um, energies that are unleashed by Wilson's pronouncements in January 1918 and the, uh, his 14 points that um, create, present the possibility of a world of sovereign nation-states and a kind of a fraternity of sovereign nation-states, however wildly and realistic that, that is. Um, this uh, presents an explicit challenge to Anglo-French imperialism. Uh, Anglo-French imperialism can't really um, operate in quite the same way in a world where Woodrow Wilson is articulating these sorts of things and in a world where Woodrow Wilson has the upper hand because both the French and the British empires are now in hock to the United States of America to the tune of many billions uh, as a result of American war loans to prop up both sides, or prop up the, the Allied side uh, during the war. Uh, Wilson is the more significant statesman when he arrives in Paris in 19, uh, 1918, late 1918, um, and it's abundantly clear that the, the centre of world power has shifted towards the United States. So Wilson's pronouncements can't be ignored. They, they must be engaged with. And, uh, and here Susan Peterson writes, To fight the tiger, or to ride it, it is enormously consequential... Um, that the British government decided, not for the last time, that they had no alternative but to be on the American side. Indeed, not only were the British officials and intellectuals already fully engaging in a transatlantic dialogue about the creation of the League of Nations, but, it went, went, but I beg your pardon, when it came to the particular question of how to reform imperial practice, the British were out ahead. 
This was the case partly because British politicians were constrained by the same liberal political culture that had both hampered and empowered Wilson. Unlike France and Britain, Britain had too entered uh, Britain too had entered the First World War without being directly attacked, justifying that engagement as a defence of the rights of small states and principally in interna- and the principles of international law. Parliamentary oversight and the pressures for greater democratic control of foreign policy was strongly and openly um, annexationist uh, where strongly and openly annexationist sentiments were widely deplored. True, the African conquests were welcomed even by liberals, but only as a means of saving nations from the depredations of the Hun. So, what does that all mean? Well, it means that British foreign policy and British imperial policy had to go through a transition as a result of the First World War. Um, the British uh, entered the First World War notionally as a defence of Belgium um, and actually as, as a defence of Serbia, uh, up and down Britain uh, in, some, in working class communities. There was a, um, an argument put towards um, Britain's working class, particularly in Scotland and Wales, small countries annexed by, historically annexed by England, that coming to the defence of small nations was the, uh, the, the, the right thing to do, and that this was a, a struggle based on some kind of, of nobility and justice. And therefore, because uh, Britain presented itself as a defender of small nations, even though really Britain is trying to maintain a balance of power in Europe and trying to uh, clip Germany's wings as far as it goes to Germany's naval ambitions, as long as Britain is presenting itself as a defender of small nations, it must, by extension, when it comes to dealing with um, the mandates or dealing with the former colonies of the Ottoman and the German Empire, be seen as being the uh, protector of those small nations, not the not a, a new merciless exploiter. So the point of the mandate system was that Britain and France would be the um, the guide, the protectors, the guides, the educators. All these are the kind of slightly offensive colonial terms that Tuareg is now, but not the notionally the masters of um, subjugated peoples within uh, colonies. The whole point was to um, prepare colonies for self-rule. There were some mandates that it was generally declared would never be ready for self-rule. And those that, with a little help, would be able to get there at some point in the not-too-distant future. Um, The uh, annexation of German colonies in Africa... um, again, reveals something very interesting about how the British and the French saw themselves, particularly the British. The the British viewed themselves very often as enlightened imperialists, looking at the horrors of the Belgian Congo and um, the uh, German genocide of the Herrera and the Nama people in southwest Africa, particularly as examples of how uh, British imperialism was somehow more benign. Um, perhaps in uh, numbers alone, the British hadn't been quite as murderous as the Belgians and the Germans in Africa, though one would have to ignore uh, generations of famines in India and the, the, uh, the death toll there. Um, but the idea that um, British imperialism was somehow good imperialism compared to the 
evil, wicked imperialism, German imperialism, is to really kind of misunderstand imperialism in, in general. The British brought with them, of course, a great deal of colonial paternalist attitudes, looking upon uh, certain tribes within Africa uh, and uh, the Pacific as being uh, childlike people, um, the, referring to them as, as sort of the, the child races. Um, and the idea that the uh, that, that representatives of African tribes would sit at the top table of world diplomacy um, along with Europeans was considered absurd even by such progressive luminaries as Britain's Labour Party at the time. Um, and that the um, Africans, they should be consulted directly about their their wishes, but um, should not actually be uh, part of a process of articulating those as something as uh, complex as, as the League of Nations or uh, at, the, at a, uh, a peace conference. So... Um, Susan Peterson writes, Most thought these principles entirely compatible with British imperial rule. Ideas of imperial tutelage or trusteeship had a long genealogy, with uh, the history of British anti-slavery cited as evidence of the empire's role in generalising human norms. Secure in its assumptions of moral leadership, British politicians were comfortable stating that, as Lloyd George promised in, the, in June of 1917, the wishes the desires and the interests of the people of the former German colonies must be the dominant factor in setting their future government. Six months later, on the 5th of January 1918, in a speech given three days before Wilson's 14 points address, the Prime Minister confirmed not only that the peoples of the Middle East deserve to have their separate national conditions recognised, but also that native chiefs and councils of the former German colonies were competent to consult and speak for their tribes and members. Such consultation was after all, expected to show only a strong preference for British rule. The main problem the British would face, one Foreign Office official remarked, smugly, was that we cannot hope to take into the British sphere all the peoples of the world who would doubtless like to enter it. In his um, memoirs of his um, life in a report in the Middle East, um, The Great War for Civilization. Uh, Robert Fisk explains that the book is called The Great War for Civilization because of the medal that his father was given at the end of the war, uh, of the First World War, um, which was on it was um, uh, had in Latin uh, the words the, the Great War for Civilization, and the the British felt in both world wars that they were defending civilization itself, and civilized by civilization they meant their empire. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Their empire um, that had brought the world... Uh, from an, an Anglocentric point of view, uh, reason and uh, civility and civilization and progress and advance and science and all, all these sorts of things. Of course, you know, the, the history of empire, the British Empire, is enormously contested and, and no one would make such naive statements uh, for a moment. But it helps that mindset. Um, and Richard Overy writes in The Morbid Age very convincingly that when the, the British considered um, their response to Hitler, it was um, a war, once again, to defend civilization. Um, and in the 19th century, the um, British Empire had been the linchpin of the world system. It had been the means uh, by which a majority of world trade was conducted and protected. Um, and colonialism, um, in, in the, the, the British view in the 19th century, was a, a largely benign thing, extending uh, civility to places where there had only been savagery uh, prior to that. Um, the idea that um, a great many um, peoples across Africa would be uh, banging down the doors of the British Empire trying to get in it is an interesting view, but one that was probably quite widely held. Um, the uh, other reason why... Um, it was easy for the British to adopt these kind of Wilsonian ideas um, of ideas of Wilsonian internationalism and incorporate them into the empire uh, and thus produce uh, the mandate system um, be was because they uh, connect very nicely with the way in which uh, the British had conducted their imperial affairs. British statesmen um, had always looked for native rulers in the Americas, in Africa, and in Asia, and, and India, particularly if you consider the, uh, the princely states in India, um, to um, be part of the running of the, the British Empire. Um, they wanted them to ally with, to trade with, and for, to, to, to devolve governance down to. Um, and they, the British could then rule indirectly. It was a, a lot cheaper to do um, and a lot easier on, on manpower. And this could be supported with a Royal Navy um, that could present a global presence, keeping the peace in gun, gunship style. Um, what imperial statesmen um, hoped to achieve 
um, was that um, as Lord Milner, uh, the colonial secretary, uh, said to Lord Louis George in 1919, speaking about Arabia, was that the native state should be kept out of the sphere of European political intrigue and within the British sphere of influence, which really meant um, that, and as he puts it, in other words, that her independent native rulers should have no foreign treaties except with us. So, in a way, what people like Milner and Lloyd George saw the British Empire as being was a, a kind of a world system in its own right. The, the figures such as Sharif Hussein of Mecca or his son Prince Faisal um, only negotiate with London and only recognise themselves as being, uh, you know, international operators within the kind of the sphere of British imperialism. That um, what you didn't want was um, Arabs or African leaders um, sitting at the table with other Europeans, partly because these other perfidious Europeans would exploit them mercilessly, whereas the benign British wouldn't do that, but also um, that there would be uh, an outpouring of nationalist sentiment from the poorer countries of the world, from Africa, from Asia, from the Middle East, um, and there would be peoples who considered themselves to have a right to sit at the, 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 the top table of humanity, which is obviously something that the British Empire uh, thought would be totally incompatible. Some British Foreign Office officials began to believe that embracing self-determination um, was the kind of the, um, the only thing that was credible after the First World War, a war that was fought largely as a result of an explosion of nationalisms, which um, by 1919 had fostered new nationalisms. Um, and that ma the mandate system was a halfway compromise between direct colonialism and the aspirations of new nations um, and the process of kind of tutoring, tutoring these new nations and guiding them to full independence um, was the, the kind of the, the compromise position. It was in this spirit of um, embracing self-determination um, that the um, development of the, the Balfour Declaration uh, can be seen of allowing a Jewish homeland within um, Palestine uh, and the hope that Jews and Arabs would somehow find some kind of um, middle ground and that Arab nationalism and Jewish nationalism could emerge peacefully and, and coexist. And, and there were significant numbers of uh, Zionists based in Britain and around the world that had similar aspirations that believed that um, Jewish and Arab nationalisms could find some, uh, some way of, of, of coexisting. The mandate over Palestine is an interesting one. Um, British self-determination um, had been uh, an idea that had emerged when the Middle East was actually in British hands. The uh, cynical arrangements of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where the Middle East was carved up, that was drawn up long before the Ottoman Empire had fallen apart, long before there was a prospect of the Ottoman Empire uh, falling apart. It was drawn up in, in 1915. Um, once the Middle East was in, firmly in British hands, to a greater extent, um, the success that the, um, uh, the, the destruction of the Ottoman Empire 
had engendered within the British uh, led to uh, greater and loftier ambitions. Some policymakers um, thought that the French could be shoved completely out of the Middle East and the British Empire um, could be uh, connected from uh, India, from Western India, all the way through the Middle East, perhaps even through Persia, um, all the way through to Egypt and then down from there to the Cape. So a huge swathe of territory could be completed by controlling all of Arabia, all of Mesopotamia, Syria, Palestine uh, and, and beyond. Um, and this um, presents uh, an interesting picture. Uh, Susan Peterson writes, when Allenby, uh, General Edmund Allenby, um, held back his troops um, in December uh, 1917 and let Faisal enter Damascus on a white horse before him, uh, December 1918, I beg your pardon, um, as the British officials read out the Anglo-French Declaration promising to establish national governments and administrations deriving their authority from the initiative and free choice of the indigenous populations, they were making a bid for their own hegemony as well. As Lord Curzon, then pre Lord President of the Council, pithily put it um, in one cabinet committee meeting, the British were going to play self-determination for all it is worth to secure their own imperial gains. So, the desire for new colonies and territories... Uh, markets and labour forces, um, the um, aspirations towards liberal internationalism and humanitarianism all mixed together to create this strange hybrid of the mandate system. Um, there was consensus as to what the mandates were and what they should be. It was debated all the way through the Paris Peace Conference. Um, one of the chief architects uh, Jan Smuts, the Prime Minister of South Africa, suggested that the mandate system should be applied to the Middle East. There, nations could be uh, Im allowed to emerge um, and there could be um, a process of uh, stewardship and tutelage. Um, but as far as Africa went, that direct colonial rule was the only thing that made any sense, that he referred to Africans uh, Africa is being inhabited by barbarians who uh, not only cannot possibly govern themselves but to whom it would be impracticable to apply any idea of political self-determination. Um, the uh, various other um, civil society and um, political institutions um, such as Britain's anti-slavery society um, and uh, parts of the colonial office disagreed and they thought that the League should have the right to um, have oversight over the mandate process to be able to visit territories, to be able to cancel mandates if they were not being run effectively uh, and take them over directly by the League um, and to uh, adjudicate in disputes between states. So there were forces within British colonialism that were acting slightly contrary to the explicit interests of British colonialism um, and they were part of this um, uh, sense of a kind of an in enlightened, uh, enlightened imperialism. France had a different view of all of this. Um, Susan Peterson writes, Through December of 1918, uh, the French officials watched the emerging Anglo-American alliance with mounting rage. 
To their mind, France had won its right to territorial compensation at Verdun, and Britain's attempt to change the rules of the game amounted to treason. France needed West Africa to provide soldiers in any future war, and at the Quai d'Orsay, the French Foreign Ministry, Robert de Quay, um thought Faisal's new, Prince Faisal's new Syrian state little more than the British surrogate. When the French diplomats tried to get their British counterparts to come to bilateral agreements before the Americans arrived, they found their erstwhile allies evasive and difficult. The British, having cast in their lot with Wilson, would use that alliance to force acceptance of a mandate system nobody else wanted. So, in the final word here, um, is that the mandate system seemed to be an entirely kind of Anglo-centric creation, uh, and France looked at the spoils of war in a, in a rather more traditional way, that France had shed blood and was entitled to colonies and needed new African manpower in order to fight future wars, which the likes of Clemenceau believed were almostly an inevitability. As he famously said, I like the League of Nations, but I don't believe in it. And he knew, was convinced that a, a, a future war would inevitably come. And he was right. Okay, guys, let's finish there. And I will um, catch up with you next week. Where hopefully we'll look at uh, a little bit more of the, uh, the mandate system. Um, thanks very much for your support. And we will... Uh, continue to um, focus on this Um, if you guys are looking for any inspiration check out our facebook page our facebook group the explaining history podcast Uh, and if you are able to sponsor uh, us via patreon that would be gratefully accepted thanks very much all the best bye-bye even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.